good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Uh, my guest today is Grady Hendricks, who will be appearing at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 24th to discuss his new novel, How to Sell a Haunted House. Grady, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks for having me, man. Um, so you write horror, which is a genre that a lot of us know probably at least as much or maybe more from motion pictures than we do from um, from writing on the page. What are What are the essentials of horror on the page? And how does that differ from what maybe we're used to seeing on the screen? Well, I mean, you know, the nice thing about horror, uh, especially in, in books, is that there aren't any rules. You know, you can, <laughs> it ranges from, you know, I always say that the two major horror novels of the 20th century are uh, Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House and uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved. And you couldn't find two books that were more different and sort of tackling different subjects. So you get to go anywhere. Um, But the big difference with movies is that movies are relentlessly external. And, you know, if you can't show it on screen or someone doing it, it doesn't exist. Uh, I do a little screenwriting. And one of the things I learned early is nothing is more boring than watching someone make a decision. You, you can't show that, you know, you could, you could show what they do afterwards, but having someone sit there and think and scrunch their face up, it just looks dumb. Um, books on the other hand are completely internal. I mean, you're enmeshed in someone's point of view, even if it's like a third person omnipotent point of view, then you're in the author's point of view, you're inside someone. And the thing I love about books is it gives you so much more freedom than movies. You can jump around in time. You can drop into someone's state of mind. You can stop in the middle of something and, and drive backwards into someone's childhood or forward. It just gives you so much more room to play. Um, so it really is internal versus external. And let's be honest, um, it's always scarier inside our heads than on the outside because <laughs> inside our heads, we're all alone. Yeah, yeah. Um you're also you mentioned um Shirley Jackson and Toni Morrison you're a, a historian of horror as well as as well as a, a novelist how does your how does your work in nonfiction sort of affect your your fictional writing well it's funny it does and it doesn't um I really just I it's hard to find histories of horror fiction because there's a lot of it out there. And while the 19th century has been plowed pretty well, the 20th century really hasn't. And when I started, I did a book called Paperbacks from Hell in 2016, 2017, which was a history of that horror paperback boom in the in the 70s and 80s. And I think a lot of people remember seeing those crazy covers with like, you know, Nazi leprechauns and monster women and, you know, sexy vampires all over drugstore racks in the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and even in the 90s, but no one really write, wrote about those. And so I just started reading them at random and and eventually read so many that I sort of had a feel for the flow of it. And yeah. one thing I realized is 
there's such a style to these books that just isn't the way people write anymore. Um, you know, they all have a lot more sex in them because everyone just assumed, every publisher assumed that their readers wanted sex and violence. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of sex in them. They're very, um, they're just, they speak to a different world and they're, they're much longer and slower paced than novels are now. I think they were really speaking to people who didn't, who had a slightly longer attention span. Um, but but the interesting thing about it is that it kind of gave me a handle on what I'm doing now in terms of, in a more abstract way. Um, you know, it, it lets me know that if I'm doing vampires, well, I know what I know where the quicksand is with vampires. I know the stuff people have done that um, got them in trouble or doesn't play or doesn't work so well. Um, so I'm able to avoid that. Um, and it also opens up some doors to areas that are, uh, we've, I've got a book, the book I've got coming out in January, How to Sell a Haunted House, um, is a really traditional ghost story. I mean, very 19th century family secrets, old houses kind of thing. Um, and it was nice to be able to sort of feel, to know what tradition I was a part of. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what was it that, I mean, did you were you drawn to horror originally as, as a child? Did you go to horror movies? What what drew you into that genre to, to begin with? Well, I think the big thing was it wasn't boring. Um, yeah. you, you know, um, like science fiction and fantasy were cool and everything, but they were always set somewhere else on another planet and another time. And horror was always the world I saw outside my window just with, you know, murders and monsters and all that stuff in it. So it just seemed like fun. Um, I wasn't a huge horror nerd until, you know, more like my adulthood, but I always did appreciate the fact that it was real life, only cooler. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you see, I mean, you talked a little bit about these books from the 80s and 90s. Um, how do you see your own work as sort of fitting into that sort of whole history of of horror writing, which I guess we would have to say goes back, you know, at least to Poe and Shelley, if not, if not earlier. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, horror really kind of flamed out in the 90s. Um, you know, there was a huge boom. It really didn't exist as a genre in publishing before, I'd say, Rosemary's Baby in 1967. Uh, books that were we consider horror now, things like Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier or The Bad Seed or something, um, they were marketed as suspense or thrillers or gothics. Um, and horror really popped up with Rosemary's Baby and then The Exorcist a few years later, and then a book by Thomas Tryon called The Other. And there were a lot of booms and busts and waves, but it turned into a huge publishing bubble. And horror really got tarred in the late 80s and early 90s with this, this reputation of being gore porn. Um, because two things happened. One is in film, there was a huge boom in slashers yeah. and producers realized that they were cheap to make and you just need a guy with a knife and some kids in the woods. And, um, and they just churned out more and more and more of them. And at the same time in publishing, Silence of the Lambs came out in 88 and then the movie won like what, 900 Oscars in, in uh, 91. And suddenly everyone wanted to do these serial killer books. And there was kind of this race to the bottom. Like everyone's like, well, to capture readers, I got to be more extreme. I got to be more gory. I got to be a serial killer who's more over the top and a crazier cover. Um, and I know cover artists who I interviewed who just stopped 
doing horror covers because they're like they just got gross um and a lot of them moved over to romance covers but horror really flamed out in this sort of burst this bubble bursting this overproduction bubble and all the books that were coming out were really a lot of them were really misogynistic there was a lot of sexualized violence in them a lot of serial killers and a lot of people the traditional wisdom is that horror kind of went to sleep at that point and didn't really pop back up until the 2000s. I kind of call BS on that. What really happened is that horror went to TV and shows like The X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and all this started attracting a really new audience and an audience a lot of women, to be honest. And people grew up on those shows and they started expecting something more from horror than, oh, scary. Because before that horror just had to be scary. These people growing up on these shows were like, oh, horror can be about friendship. Horror can be romantic. Horror can be funny. Horror can do all these different things that they saw, you know, Chris Carter doing, that they saw saw Joss Whedon doing. And these people, as they got older, really demanded a lot more. And so the tradition of horror I'm working in now is sort of the aftermath of that, where we all think it can do a lot more. We can write stories about our childhood that use horror. Uh, We can write about um, uh, romance with horror. We can write about friendship with horror. Um, And one of the really nice things that's happened is that publishing everywhere has had this huge push for diversity and own voices and things like that. And that's been nothing but born dividends in horror. Uh, people like Victor Laval and um, uh, Stephen Graham Jones and so many writers who are really getting Cassandra Call, uh, getting chances, you know, that they wouldn't have gotten in the 80s. They just, you know, they're what makes them such great writers now would have gotten doors closed in their faces in the 80s. So it's a really great time to be writing horror, but I'm very much part of that sort of post-90s tradition where we all just expect more from it and it can be more than just scary yeah and that was an enormous monologue for a relatively great to, to sort of put these things in context and, and it sort of leads me right to my next question which is you know you're talking about being in this post-90s tradition and yeah you say in your note to your readers i wanted to write something old-fashioned and gothic because i needed an escape from the last three years so in in what ways do you see this book as as old fashioned and gothic? Well, you know, the first book I wrote, Horror Store, was about a haunted IKEA. So it was kind of a haunted house book, but it's a haunted IKEA. So it was really, really different from a traditional haunted house book. And I wanted to do a haunted house book that was a haunted house book. During the pandemic, I read a bunch of 19th century ghost stories, uh, and they were so comforting um, and so great. But I wanted to do something with with abandoned houses and family secrets and you know the unspeakable past being revisited on the present and i just wanted to do it with a pretty traditional suburban brick rancher house and a family that happens to have a christian puppet ministry um (laughs) you know um and then i guess the second half of my question about that is you said you need an escape from the last three years i mean how did how did the covid experience shape the creation of of this novel? How has it changed your work in general? Yeah, it was, you know, one of the nice things is my office is about three blocks from my house. And um, so every day I was able to keep coming to my office and keep working. Um, And that really kept me sane. And one of the things that horror has always done is in a way that no other genre does, horror really sits with death. 
Um, it's just a part and parcel of um, every horror story. It can start with death. It can end with death. It can have a lot of death in between. You can have a death sandwich with extra death on the top. But death is an essential part of it. And that's something I really enjoy because I feel like, you know, the one thing all people have in common is we all die. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, a, a businesswoman in Montreal and a migrant worker in, you know, um, uh, Baja, California, they're both going to die. That's what they have in common. And, you know, the, the COVID experience, especially in New York, really, it was very in your face. Death, there was, I remember three weeks in late April, I think early May, where you just heard sirens all day, every day, just ambulances going nonstop. And it was really, there was just a sense of mourning out there. And and my mom got real sick. She has lung disease that she sort of lives with and COVID would have been a death sentence for her. And my sisters and I all had to sort of confront the fact that, you know, we really did think our mom was going to die. And, um, and so it was just really having that in your face. And, and we lost a lot of people. We lost about five people during the pandemic. And so it was just having it in your face. And, it, and one of the things that happens when people die that I feel like you're sort of not given much help with is they leave a lot of stuff behind. I mean, and, and not just like memories and stories or trauma or whatever, but stuff. What do you do with all this stuff, you know? And and it's 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 really weird. And you know, and and what's a ghost but something that something that people leave behind after they die that's a pain in the ass for the living. Yeah. Um and, <laughs> and and so are boxes of tourist trap pamphlets and all that fabric that was going to get made into a quilt and photos of relatives no one remembers the names of anymore. And so it was just really this book was really me trying to sort through all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you uh, like members of my own household enjoy watching HGTV, if you troll Zillow looking at your neighbor's houses. Oh, yeah. If you've ever seen one of those hoarder shows like you will be able to relate to this book. But you will also chuckle um, when you hear the title How to Sell a Haunted House. What role does humor play? I mean, we don't always think of humor and and horror as being, you know, connected. But what, what role does you see humor playing in your in your book and in this book in particular? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's a part of everyday life. Um, there's a there's a picture of my sisters and I and my mom and my grandmother at my grandfather's funeral, and we are busting a gut. I mean, so I can't remember what just got said, but I, I mean, I've never seen such an unfortunate picture of my family because we do not have our photogenic faces on. We're like crying, um, but it's at a funeral, you know? Um, you will get the call that someone you love is dead right after you had the best sex of your life. You will be having the worst, most depressed, most put upon day ever right before you trip over a curb on the sidewalk and go flying. You know, like everything in our lives sits next to each other in a really awkward way. The, the funny stuff and the sad stuff and the sexy stuff and the depressing stuff. And so for me, to write a book about life, it's got to have the funny stuff in it. And to be honest, everything in horror is ridiculous. If you, if you make it realistic enough, 
it all starts to get ridiculous. I mean, ghosts, like there's there's a, a spiritual presence in my house that's gonna watch me take a shower. You know, that's like, <laughs> uh, like why? What, what is, well, why is it rattling chains? Why does it wanna do that? It didn't, you know, Uncle Freddie didn't rattle chains when he was alive. Why is he doing it when he's dead? Um, you know, it's just, and so I feel like my job is to take those tropes realistically and push them to the point where you can see how ridiculous they get and then stop right before they break and get sort of overly ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. So without without giving us any spoilers, which means really without going past about the third chapter, um, <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about, about the setup, at least, for, for How to Sell a Haunted House? Sure. It's uh, about two adult siblings who are completely estranged and their parents pass away and they have to clean out their childhood home and put it on the market, which means they've got to deal with each other while they're dealing with their grief. And of course, you know, let's face it, every house winds up being a haunted house. It's, they're, they're all full of memories and ghosts and the past, um, and especially that house you grew up in. Um, and so they're dealing with this haunted house, uh, and each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now aside from a, I think beautifully sneaky use of the word ghost in your third sentence. Um, and of course the title itself, there's this novel starts out, you know, like a novel, there's nothing supernatural happening in the opening pages. There's nothing more terrifying than parents visiting their pregnant daughter and showering her <laughs> with spice, you know, um, when you're when you're structuring a horror novel, how do you know when is it time to uh, you know switch from from the normal to the to the supernatural? When is it time to sort of tell the characters? Because we as readers maybe already know. Tell the characters, hey, there's something different going on here. Yeah, well, I mean that's the big trick, right? Because there's two things that happen in horror that are always really hard to get past. One is when the characters go from, well, these are just strange things to these are supernatural things yeah. to get that moment of belief. And then the other is the why don't they leave? You know, and that that really afflicts haunted house stories. You know, the the why don't they leave question, just leave, just walk, away, just walk yeah. out um, in real life. You know, well, you don't leave because you're 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 you've got a lot of equity in that house. You know, you can't just walk out. And that's like what most of your your worth is tied up in. But in books, that doesn't really pass the test. Just because something's realistic doesn't mean it feels right, you know, to a reader. Um, so that's those are the two hardest things to figure out and to sort of pull off. Um, when to sort of drop the shoe um, that paranormal stuff or weird stuff is happening. It also depends on the book you're writing. I did a book called The Final Girl Support Group, and the the horror is right there from the first page, yeah. um, because the book was really this breathless kind of chase. With How to Sell a Haunted House, it's a it's a book about a family, and families have a lot of stories and a lot of stuff going on. So I wanted readers to sort of know these people before they had to know these people and the ghosts that surround them. So you know, and and ghost stories are usually a bit of a slower burn. Um, so, you know, in that case, the tradition of the, the genre really shaped when you when you drop that supernatural shoot. Yeah. And I noticed, too, that you have, you know, I said the first two or three chapters, nothing particularly out of the ordinary happens. And then something happens that, you know, you might be able to explain it or it might be kind of weird. And then, you know, gradually things get weirder. But then you also will back off and we'll have a chapter or two when it's just the family dealing with how to plan a funeral or that. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of these twin um, interlocking issues of pacing 
and raising the stakes and how you how you structure the novel with those with those two things in mind yeah no no it's 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 that's the trick right um that's what you hope you pull off um and for me i really wanted to more than a lot of my other books keep the emotional stakes really high for these characters um because you can't just kill someone on every page people get numb to it they get they get bored of it but if you can really get them to invest in a character and then let them know exactly what this character wants and doesn't want um and then start throwing those things at the character that's when readers, you know, really get into it. So for me, that was, it's a balancing act. You know, when do you go forward? When do you go back? When do you give people a little chance to breathe? When do you need to go a little deeper on the emotional part? It's it's really, you kind of have to trust your gut and have a lot of, and, and I also have a lot of first readers who read stuff, uh, my stuff and tell me when they get bored. Uh, <laughs> they're not shy about that. So um, that that helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you mentioned that this book is about family. I think if it's about anything, it's about family. I mean, yeah, we have some very creepy dolls and puppets, but um, but at the core, it's what a, family it's a, doesn't? Yeah, what what family doesn't? Right, at least metaphorically. Um, and and one of the things you do is you capture so well the way that a, a person can be. Just as an example, um, a, be seen as a perfect mom one moment by the by the child. And is a horrible mom the next moment, mm. and that those two things are not that paradox is not you know a paradox. Those things are not incompatible. Right? Can you talk, can you talk a little bit about how you you create these seemingly paradoxical family relationships, and yet they're, they're so realistic? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's family. Like, there's no one you hate more, and there's no one who knows you better, you know, um, than than a sibling. Um, and, and, you know, one of the interesting things I think that went from being a kid to being an adult is when you're able to understand the sort of twin ideas simultaneously, that your parents are complete and utter failures who are making it all up as they go along. And your parents are your parents who are your parents, you know, um, I mean, that's it. You don't get other parents. Um, and, you know, I think every parent feels like they're a failure in a lot of ways and are always kind of surprised when their kids turn out mostly okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's one of those things that it all sort of depends on the moment. I mean, I certainly remember as a teenager, you know, stuff where my, I was just like, my mom's insane. I can't handle this person. What a loser. And then as an adult talking about those same times and realizing she felt just as much at sea as I thought she did, you know, um, and realizing also that these are people, you know, these are like when you're a kid, everyone in your family is a is a is a supporting character in the in the grand movie of your own life where you're the star. And as an adult, you realize, well, you're a walk on actor in their movies. You know, these are people with full lives. They had days and lives before you showed up, you know, um, and so trying to capture that was really hard, to be honest, like writing about families is tough. Uh, it's funny, I did a book called My Best Friend's Exorcism that sat in the same neighborhood, which is the neighborhood I grew up in. And um, my one of my sisters-in-law afterwards was like, how come in every book, the main characters are always only children? And I realized both my main characters were only children. And the answer is because it's really hard to get a family right. It's there's so Everything that happens in a family has so much behind it. Um, and, you know, to write this book, 
I think I've got a, a document that's like 20,000 words, 18,000 words, that's sort of a year by year history of this family going back to the parents growing up and meeting, just because I needed to know all of that stuff to write any of the present day stuff. Like in, not a lot of that's in the book, but I had to know it. Yeah. Um, it's hard, it's a lot of work. I didn't like but, it. Now, some of that backstory is in, in the book and there yeah. are things, I mean, um, when when you're working on the structure of a novel, you want to have a. There's sometimes a scene in the present that the reader's not going to understand fully unless they have information from the past. I mean, I think a yeah. good example in this novel is is the funeral. The 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 parents in the novel die practically on the first page, very early, um, in an accident, and and they have a funeral, and that is a crazy scene. <laughs> but we wouldn't <laughs> understand that scene, what was going on in that scene, if you hadn't given us some backstory. Um, right about, about what the mom did, you know, the Christian puppet ministry and all these other yeah. things. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of how you meet out that backstory without bringing the action of the novel grinding to a halt? Yeah, it's hard. And there is a moment where the action of the novel does grind to a halt so someone can tell <laughs> a very long story. And and my my excuse for that is that um in most traditional haunted house stories, there's always a lot of storytelling within the stories. Um, even like, you know, Henry James' Turn of the Screw. I'm not Henry James, but that is a story being told to people on Christmas one year. Um, you know, so much horror is people telling a story to other people. So I wanted a little of that in there. But yeah, getting that backstory in there without feeling like you're forcing it down people's throats, it's it's a it's it's hard it is really a drag and you know and you wind up cutting so much of it away that as a writer you feel like well people just don't know have enough here and i think that you have to have had it there and pulled away every last bit of it it's like a jenga tower you pull away every last bit of it you can spare and what's left has that structure behind it yeah. and it's enough but you've got to cut deeper than you think you need to cut. Um, people are smart. They'll figure it out. And, you know, I mean, this book, the first draft of this book was almost twice as long as it is now. Thank God. My editor, you know, it's like this, this, this cannot be that this long. Yeah. Um, you know, when you, when you see that the title of the book contains the word haunted house, when you know that the author of the book has written horror novels in the past, you come to the book with certain expectations as a reader. I mean, here's this house full of dolls and puppets, which, you know, it's pretty weird. But when I know that Grady Hendrix is writing the book, it's not just weird. I can hear the creepy music in the background practically <laughs> as I'm walking through this house. You know, how do you how do you leverage um, and build on and sometimes subvert um readers expectations that they have outside of of the text but the expectations they bring to to reading the book yeah well you really you know it's funny one of the things i'm fascinated by is magic tricks um i i don't do magic i'm not good enough i don't have the patience but i really like watching magicians work and reading yeah. about how magicians work because a lot of it has to do with writing horror to me um because a magic trick is about getting the audience to expect one thing. And while they're expecting that, that's sort of a piece of misdirection while you're setting up something else. And then you spring that reversal on them at the right moment. And hopefully they think you're a genius. Um, and, <laughs> or or at least worth, you know, the, the, the $20 the book costs. Um, 
And so, yeah, a lot of that is playing off that expectation. Um, you know, having people looking over here while you're doing something else over there. Um, and like you said, uh, people know it's a horror book. It's got Haunted House right in the title. So that lets me have a little more runway up front. They know the haunted stuff's coming. I get a little more grace up front to set things up. Um, and if I can set some things up up front that they can forget about later. So when they pop up, they go, oh, right. That doesn't just come out of the blue. That was actually earlier. Um, it's even better. Um, and the other thing that's really nice is um, being a horror writer and being known as a horror writer, it lets me short circuit a few things. I don't, one of the things I really hate, and you need a little of it, but I always think of it, and it happens a lot in screenwriting, it happens less in books, but I think of it as laugh tracking. Um, the, one of the first screenplays I wrote um, I didn't put in lines like, you know, the, the, for example, like the, the skinless witch slithered out of the air vent into the young woman's lap. I then didn't put the young woman screams in terror. This is disgusting. Cause I'm like, well, of course that actor is going to, they're not just going to look at it. And the note I got back from the producers was, gosh, these people all really took all this skinless witch stuff in stride. They just didn't, didn't seem to phase them at all. And I realize that you have to do a certain amount of laugh track. You have to do a certain amount of indicating, okay, right now, this is a scary moment. And you know it's scary because the characters are screaming in terror. Right. I'm telling you that. You can do that a lot more elegantly in a book. but um, And being known as a horror writer, I don't have to do it ham-handed at all. Um, I, I People know. Um, but you do need a little of it. You know, people... People want to know they're heading down the right road and they're reading the right book. They're reading the book you wrote. Um, so you need a little bit of that. But but being known as a horror writer and writing a horror book lets you get away with pulling a little, being a little more understated. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, there's a, there's a scene, for instance, where some weird stuff is going on. And in a, in a lot of novels, I would be reading that and going, well, the character's just had a nap. She's probably still asleep. It's probably a dream. Right. But, yeah. when I'm, but, I'm, but when I know it's your book, I'm like, this probably isn't a dream. This is probably really going on. You know? no. Well, you know, and that's one of those funny things. So I used to love writing characters who weren't quite sure if what was happening was real or not. You know, am I asleep? Am I awake? They're in a semi And man, every reader, they, I write horror. This, every reader assumes it's really happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? They could be, they could wake up in the middle of the night and I could write, you know, Louise was half asleep. She wasn't quite sure if what she was seeing was real. Every reader is going, oh, it's real. <laughs> That's the assumption. <laughs> I'm paying and, money to make sure it's real. So, I mean, that, that sort of brings up another question about, about expectations. And that is, so the readers have this expectation. It's real. Yeah. But the, the character, Louise, for instance, doesn't know that she's in a horror novel. Right. right. So she doesn't have that same expectation. How do you how do you play with and make use of that gap between the character's expectation and the reader's expectation? One of the things I often do, well, you never want the reader to get too far ahead of the characters. Mm -hmm. The second the reader knows where everything's going is the second the book's done. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I often do is I will often drop in a character who, you know, 
there'll be a character who maybe doesn't believe what's going on, but then I couple them with a character who absolutely 100% has no problem accepting this whatsoever. Uh, maybe a little too credulous, um, but you know, I did a book the, in My Best Friend's Exorcism, there's the exorcist who's just like, oh yeah, your friend's possessed by a demon from hell. Mm, there's no, there's no, there's no wiggle room here. Um, <laughs> And that's always fun for the reader when that character shows up because they're like, yes, that is me. Um, and in this case, it's Mark, Louise's brother, who really is into vibes and astrology and, you know, the supernatural. Um, and so, yeah, that's the trick I use is to put in a character who really believes it from the jump. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but, but another topic that... Um, really is very present in the, especially in the first, you know, sort of third or so of the novel is the way we talk about, or in many cases, don't talk about death. Mm -hmm. um, can, can you talk about how you sort of incorporated that into the novel and maybe even as from the point of view of a Harvard, hard novelist, tell us how we should talk about death? Or? Well, I don't know how anyone should do anything, but one of the things that always surprised me is you know, I, I growing up, uh, there were a lot of people in our family and, and, and people we knew who died when, when I was very young. And, um, and so death was just always sort of around. And, and we were pretty straight. My parents, my mom was a nurse before she got married. My dad was a doctor and everyone was pretty straightforward about it. And, and we had a lot of pets, pets die. It's one of the sad things about pets, but that really is the first place. A lot of kids, especially me learned about death and, so, you know, it was just front and center. And when I grew, got older and met people in college and places who'd never been to a funeral, who'd never had a pet that died or a pet had died and their parents had told them it ran away and, you know, that kind of, it blew my mind that there were people who just didn't talk about this stuff. And I get why you don't. It's, it's awkward. Um, and so one of the things I've always really felt is that like, we just don't talk about death enough. There's a really great um, poet, Thomas Lynch, who writes about death. He's a mortician mm -hmm. and he writes great essays that are really beautiful about um, death. And um, I just feel like we don't discuss it enough. It's, and I'm not sure how we should discuss it, but I know we should discuss it more because it's sometime or another, every single one of us is gonna be in that room with someone we love who is dying and you need to be there for them. And you can't be running all over the place, caught unawares. Uh, you, you need to have your act together as much as you, you won't have it together, but you need to have it as much together as you can. So you're there for them and you're present for that. And you're not hiding from it because if you are not present for that, if you are not looking that in the eye, if you are not holding their hand, you will regret that later. And that is one thing that, that I know. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like for there are a lot of characters in this in this book who suffer from their unwillingness to talk about death or to, you know, even admit <laughs> that death is, mm -hmm. is around. exists. Um, so, as you said, Louise is not an only child. She has this brother, Mark. Uh, and I think it would be a huge understatement to say that they don't really get along. <laughs> um, it's it's hard to think of a fictional pair of siblings who are as well written as being, you know, you have all these good reasons for them to not get along, but tell, tell a little, a little bit about why you wanted that to be such an antagonistic um, relationship. What, what opportunities does that open up for you narratively? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, on the one hand, and I love writing people who can't stand each other. I just, it's so much fun. Um, and, you know, I don't know a lot of brothers and sisters who've always gotten along. I don't know a lot of sisters and sisters or brothers and brothers who've always gotten along. There is a lot of friction in those relationships. And one of the things that was really interesting is, to me, is my sisters and I all sort of mellowing in how we interact with each other as we get older. But I know people who who the opposite has happened and all that friction has come up later. And it is crazy to watch. I mean, some of the most insane childish power plays I've ever seen in my life between like 50 year olds, you know, and, and it's it's just been wild to see, but no one can get at your soft spots and your sore points quicker and faster and sharper than a sibling. Mm-hmm. So that was, and also, you know, you, you want them to start apart so they can wind up together. They got to go somewhere. If they start together, the only place they can go is apart. So it's more fun to go the other way for me. Yeah. And it is true that they, they each know um, where the soft underbelly of the other is. And they're oh, yeah. not afraid to attack. And um, both of them don't really know each other. You know, yeah, they don't, yeah. they have an idea of who their sibling is, but they don't really never took the time to figure out who their sibling actually is. Well, I think another key there is both of them don't really know the truth about their siblings' relationship with the parents. They both make these yeah. assumptions about, as we all do. We And there's almost no one who goes around assuming that they are the favorite child. You know, every, everybody's oh, exactly. like, no, 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 that was, the, that was my brother. That was my sister, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, totally. And, you know, in, in my family, it was really eye-opening when my sisters and I had that conversation about who was the favorite because we all assumed we knew who it was and each one of us thought a different one was the yeah. favorite. And yeah. every single one of us thought we were the one who was hard done by. Right, right. <laughs> um, so at one point, Louise, um, you know, we don't we don't see Louise's mother um, alive in the novel. We see her in memories and in flashbacks and in stories. Um, but Louise is remembering her mother and, and her mother's rather eccentric cooking. Um, and she says something about her mother bowing to the cult of Southern motherhood. Oh yeah. What does southernness bring to this novel? I mean, you said it's it's a town or neighborhood that you grew up in. What is what does the setting bring to the novel that that would have been different if it had been set somewhere else? Well, you know, it's funny. I would never growing up, I always was like, oh, the South is the same as everywhere else. And I hated that sort of phony, cartoony South you saw in movies, you know, um, or or even even Pat Conroy at times seemed a little overbaked to me, you know, that kind of like Southern Gothic. I mean, great writer, but I just I just, I just had a bone to pick with that. And then growing up and moving away, you know, I tell all these stories about my family because my family tells stories and my wife's family are from Toronto. And they were just saying, oh, your family is so crazy. These are the craziest stories you've ever heard. Well, then as I, you know, was more and more part of their family, I heard crazier stories from them, but they didn't tell them. They sort of like, they were like secrets and they were sort of ashamed of them. They wouldn't tell them around a dinner table as entertainment. They told them as like very serious issues. And so I realized to me, at least in my family, one thing that seemed very uniquely Southern is everyone like to talk and everyone liked to tell stories and the stories always had a point they were to build someone up or break someone down or to warn someone about something or or something they were always stories with a purpose and so to me that's one of the reasons i loved doing a ghost story because ghost stories are all about stories 
Uh, why is this ghost here? What unfinished business does it have to deal with? Ghosts are things of the past. They're they're told in flashbacks and stories. Um, where better to do that than a Southern family? Yeah, yeah. I I love in novels um, specificity. You know, when when somebody uh, can create a career for someone that is that is so distinct and i think christian puppet ministry may be pretty close to the top of the of the list when it comes to that um so louise's mom has has created a career um as as a christian puppet minister she builds her own puppets she collects dolls and so therefore this house this haunted house is jam packed full of things that look like people but aren't people <laughs> Um, I love that. Is there, is there something that's like... just inherently, is that like inherently the most horrifying thing that something that looks like a human being, but isn't, how did, why did you want to play with those particular kinds of objects? Yes. It is the most <laughs> horrifying thing. I mean, mannequins, automatons, dolls, puppets. There's something really weird about something that looks human but isn't human. We immediately begin projecting a personality onto it. We immediately begin treating it like it's human. Um, and we all have relationships that are so strange with inanimate objects, you know? Um, we talk to our cars. We beg our laptops not to keep messing with us. We yell at our phones. We, we, I mean, you know, I don't, I would be hard. I think it would be hard to find someone who didn't say excuse me at least once or twice in their life when they bumped into a piece of furniture, you know, like <laughs> we just have weird relationships with inanimate objects. And, and if they look real, if they look humanoid, then it gets weirder. I mean, Lots and lots of us had dolls uh, and stuffed animals when we were kids that were real to us. And, and they were sort of like where we learned to care about something that didn't care about us back. They were like training wheels for having kids. Um, and, you know, even though we all know those dolls are inanimate, like, could you rip the head off yours? Probably not. Like, you know, could you tear their arms off? Probably no. Um, and so, yeah. And, you know, and I did a lot of theater when I was in uh, high school and college. And so you wind up doing a lot of puppet work, a lot of mask work. And there is a real power to that stuff. You know, puppets kind of tell you who they are when you put them on. You're like, you figure it out. Um, and, you know, you can get away with all kinds of stuff on stage. because not you. It's the puppet. Um, and so there's a whole wealth of stuff there. And, you know, it's 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 also something that's gone through history. I mean, one of the reasons we think of puppet shows as being for children is in uh, Soviet Union, in um, in Mexico, in um, uh, in China, um, when a lot of these countries embrace some kind of you know either central socialist rule or or, or authoritarian rule. One of the things they saw was that a site of sort of public disruption were puppet shows, these things like Punch and Judy shows, like Petrushka, and all these really riotous, violent puppet shows that were done for adults about these little tiny, crazy creatures that like overturned authority and uh, beat their wives and got drunk and, you know, thumb their nose at, 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 at law and order. And so, they knew they wanted to preserve these puppet traditions because they were important uh, and people liked them. 
But to sort of defang them, they really watered them down. I mean, especially in Russia and made them very anodyne and started making them for children. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the depowering, the, the, the castrating in some ways of these puppet experiences was how puppetry became thought of as for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some creepy puppets uh, and some creepy dolls in these pages and this, the, the details of, of her mom's uh, you know, the names that you've given these puppets, the, the stories that she tells the kids in her, in her ministry or, or goes back to my point about how humor and horror can go, can go hand in hand. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. All right. What word do you love to work into your writing? Um, you know, the word that always winds up in my writing, whether I like it or not, is just. I can't stand it. It's in there all the time. I have to go through and do a just removal pass. <laughs> but the word I always like to try to write in is how. For some reason, man, I love that word. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Almost. <laughs> it either is or it isn't. It's not almost. Where's your favorite place to write? Um, I got to say my office, I love having a place where I can go to every day and just sit down and do my thing. Where could you never write? I don't think there is anywhere. I think I've actually written almost anywhere. Yeah. Um, I once sat next to Stephen Graham Jones on a panel and he actually started writing notes to a short story as he was answering a question. <laughs> and I thought, I haven't quite crossed that bridge yet, but I have no shame about trying that one day. Yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Almost all of them. I'm a terrible learner and a big reader, so I kind of know if something sounds right to me. I've only started learning the real rules of grammar, like now, like eight books. In. <laughs> so uh, my father-in-law is a grammar nerd, and he is like, well, look at this dangling particle. Look at this split infinitive. And I'm like, oh, go away. Leave me alone. <laughs> What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, Robert the Rose Horse. What are you reading now? Right now, I am working on a book about um, unwed mother, uh, homes for unwed mothers. And so I'm reading a ton of books about homes for unwed mothers. There were a lot of these like scare books about, um, you know, having a baby, illegitimate childhood, written in the 60s and 70s. Um, for pleasure, what I'm reading right now is I actually. Um, Am I reading anything for pleasure? Oh, actually, you know, I am. Okay, there is an amazing book. I want to make sure I get the title right. There's a book by, uh, it's by Penny Armstrong and Sherilyn Feldman called A Midwife Story. And it's a memoir from the 70s about a midwife who worked in Pennsylvania Dutch uh, country, Amish country. And it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It's real short. It's out of print, but you can get used copies for like two bucks. Um, it really, it really blew me away. What Thomas Lynch does for death, this book does for birth. Mm -hmm. What book would you like to have written? Oh, uh, True Grit by Charles Portis. I think that's maybe the great American novel of the 20th century. And what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would love to write, um, 
I would love to write a science fiction book. I really loved hard sci-fi when I was a kid. And I just don't think anyone wants that for me. But And I don't think I'd be able to pull it off, to be honest, but I would love to be able to. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, I love your book so much. I bought 10 copies <laughs> and gave them to all my friends. <laughs> and then each of them bought 10 copies. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Grady Hendricks, whose novel, How to Sell a Haunted House, is available wherever books are sold. Grady, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be handing over the reins to Ann Bogle, also known as the Modern Mrs. Darcy, host of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Ann will be interviewing me about my new novel, The Enigma Affair, a thriller that answers the question, what happens when a small-town librarian and a professional assassin team up to solve a 75-year-old Nazi mystery. The Enigma Affair will be published on September 6th and is currently available for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Signed copies are available from Bookmarks. Also in September, we'll hear from Scott Truro, best-selling author of Presumed Innocent, about his new novel and his upcoming appearance at the Bookmarks Festival. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (music) 